0: because we're about to find out. (laughs) The great hymn we sang this morning, Mighty Fortress, written by Martin Luther in the 1500s. He said, the spirit and the gifts are ours. And if we and our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. We need the spirit of God to get us through. By the way, Martin Luther was German, so the hymn was written in German, and it had to be translated. And if I'm correct in my memory, it was Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, the great linguist who first translated those words into English. Think about it, though. To translate it into another language and have the same meaning and still a rhyme scheme, that takes quite a thing. And of course, Henry Longfellow is a local man from Cambridge here from the uh, 19th century, one of my favorite poets of all. All right, I'm going to ask you this morning to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. I'll read to you this morning the first 11 verses and make my remarks based on that text. And so Paul writes to the great congregation of first century Rome, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was with the flesh, God did. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Amen. Heavenly Father, we praise you for this, the proclamation of your holy word. We thank you, Father, that it was handed down through the ages by the sacrifice of martyrs and reformers and apostles and translators and publishers to be here in our hands, O Lord, that we might might have the word in our own tongue and rejoice in it, Father. We pray this morning, Father, that your spirit will assist your servant in doing justice to the exposition of this, your holy word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And so Paul gives us this great conclusion this morning, the great conclusion of the last three chapters. And that conclusion is that in Christ and by the Spirit, because the Spirit is that one ingredient that we haven't seen much in the book of Romans up until this point. But here, in the eighth chapter, we have this great celebration of the work of the Holy Spirit in the church and in the individual. And so he writes, There's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And friends, this chapter, by all accounts, and I think I read all the accounts, is the pinnacle of gospel assurance and depicts for us the height of Christian joy. We are not those who are just forgiven. That's the beginning of our walk with Christ, the forgiveness part. The rest is bearing fruit unto holiness to God through the Holy Spirit. This chapter is said to be the greatest chapter in the greatest book of the Bible. And so we read from Douglas Moo, the commentator of the New International Commentary on the New Testament. He writes the sanctuary within the cathedral of the Christian faith, the tree of life in the midst of the Garden of Eden, the highest peak in a range of mountains are some of the metaphors used by interpreters who extol chapter 8 as the greatest passage within what so many consider to be the greatest book in the scripture. From Martin Lloyd-Jones. Someone has said that in the whole of Scripture, the brightest and most lustrous and flashing stone or collection of stones is this epistle to the Romans. And that these verses are the brightest gem in the cluster. J. Vernon McGee. Remember him? Chapter 8 is the high watermark in Romans. This fact is generally conceded by all interpreters of this great epistle. And I'll quote to you one final commentator. This chapter has brought me up from the darkest places of my mind, the deep recesses of despair and the ruin that might have been my life. I have been rescued by this chapter of Scripture so many times in my Christian walk. I don't know what people do without God. I don't know what people do when they fall into trouble and have no one to call upon who have no written word, no faith in the authority of God's word that can lift us out of ourselves and out of our despair. But I have been there. And this book transported me back to where a Christian needs to be, standing in confidence before his God that there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. When loved ones pass away, read Romans 8. When all seems lost, turn to this chapter. When doubts and fears and faults and failures overwhelm you, leave them all at the threshold of these sublime assurances. This is the assurance chapter of the scriptures, my friends. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Verse 18. I have no doubt that when Jesus beckoned his disciples to come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, that a meditation on this chapter would escort you into his very presence, and that through these verses you will undoubtedly feel his secure embrace, and that you would ask what the apostle himself asked, where we read, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who would dare to be against us? And if you do dare, woe is unto you. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? That's the church, friends. That's us. That's our nickname. We're God's elect. It's God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It's Christ who died and, furthermore, is also risen who makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we're killed all day long. We're accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things, Paul wrote, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so the chapter begins with no condemnation, and it ends with no separation. Nothing shall separate us from the love of God. All those things that try our hearts during the week and during our lives, all those prayers that we make because we're so troubled about the circumstances in our lives. And a week later, when all those prayers are answered, we don't even remember that they were our troubles anymore. Troubles come and go, but the Lord is always there with his people and by their side and striving and suffering with us. So Paul offers this pretty exhaustive list of obstacles that our faith is designed to overcome. I find it interesting, though, that when he gives the list of all these things that trouble us in life, the first one on the list is death. (laughs) He puts that away right at the beginning. As if death, though fearful, is not as fearful as enduring the hardships of life. And so from death he goes on to other things. His rhetoric soars to spirits in the heavenlies and then descends to things of this world that trouble the saints. Things present, he writes. Things we experience in the here and now that trouble us. Those are the things that are present in our lives. Those are the things we prayed about this morning with the supplications of the saints. He then conquers our secret inner fears by moving moving to imagined things. Friends, our our imaginations frighten us. And it ought not to be so. Our imaginations are what? They're about future things. And even those are conquered in Christ. Things we could not predict today, but things that a fearful mind might conjure up. Friends, I wake up in the middle of the night, and I have a confession to make. I think I'm scared of the dark. Because things that trouble me in the middle of the night, in my little secret place, don't bother me at all once the sun comes up. Maybe you're like me. Maybe not. But those are fears that a half-dreaming mind conjures up that might happen. Let the trouble for the day be sufficient, Jesus said. Tomorrow will take care of its own trouble, but there will be trouble. Future things. He's already conquered future things. Things we could not predict today, but things we conjure up in our minds. And because the list could not go on forever, he encapsulates our confidence with the phrase, any other created thing. In other words, don't bring something up because you think I missed it. I only have so much ink. Indeed, friends, a world, in a world created by an omnipotent deity, how could it be that any other element in the universe, any merely created thing, could cancel out the purpose and the promise of its creator? Created things have no real power, friends. Jesus said as much to Pontius Pilate. You could have no power unless it was granted to you from above. So my application for today is simply this. Be persuaded, as the Apostle Paul is persuaded. Be persuaded that a meditation upon these truths, these promises, will deliver you triumphantly toward all that comes your way, whatever it may be, and however fiercely they present themselves. Remember chapter 7? If chapter 7 presents to us the great struggle of the Christian life, then this chapter presents the great remedy for our trouble. When we cry out with the apostle, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? Let this chapter answer with all sincerity and power, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. At the end of the last chapter, we saw the miserable, unregenerate become the helpless regenerate. He was saved, friends, but not empowered. Even his best attempts to honor God fell to dust by his own admission of moral impotence. He saw what he should do. He could think of it, but he had no power to accomplish it. He could see the good, but he could not perform the good. He recognized the evil in himself, but confessed he had no power to crawl out from under it. And it's been my contention, as you know, against some of the best commentators, that the man in the former passage is Paul's testimony of the struggle of all men who are suddenly convicted by the righteousness of the law. We see a man stuck in the middle between justification and sanctification. And friends, I'm going to tell you, just as you had no part in your justification, your sanctification will be automatic. It's assured, and this chapter assures us that those who are justified will be sanctified, and those who are sanctified will be glorified. He brings us all the way by his power. He's made free by his recognition of Jesus Christ as the sole deliverer, but remains in bondage to his own Wretched impulses. He says as much. He says, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? He comes to a revelation of Christ, our Lord, but then makes this confession. So then with the mind I myself serve serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. Saved, but still helpless. What's missing? And so we see this self-confessed, miserable sinner striving to mortify the deeds of his own flesh and admitting nothing but abject failure. And then with a desperate plea, reaches out to God in the person of Jesus Christ, as each one of us have done, yet still confessing to serve the law of sin evident in his members. How can these things be? He remains unable to perform in a manner prescribed by law and known in his inner self. J. Vernon McGee once again wrote that this condition that the old nature has no good, or rather says of this condition that the old nature has no good and the new nature has no power. To know the identity of the deliverer is not deliverance. To recognize the Savior as the promised Messiah does not in and of itself convert. Jesus walked and talked with many people on the streets that didn't get saved. There were some who he healed who didn't even come back to thank him or recognize him. Just knowing isn't enough. Some called out to him but did not take hold of what he had to, to offer. Things like health and healing and the abundant life and eternal life. Many saw the miracles. Many attested to the healings. Many ate of the loaves and fishes and still walked away unchanged. Though our nature is changed, friends, it is not necessarily empowered. That's why Paul said in the last chapter, reckon yourself dead to sin. You are dead to sin, so reckon yourself dead to sin. He wants us to come along with him in our minds. But there's more to it. Though we have come to a knowledge of Christ, we are yet unable to walk in a manner prescribed by Christ. How can that be? We're like Adam before the fall. He sort of cleansed us. We have a clean slate. We're cleansed like Adam before the fall. Adam was new, and we're made new. Adam could serve God or the call of his own desires. He had the choice. We saw that graphically enough, right? We have the same choice. We can choose our desires or Christ's desires. But where's the power? That's the whole trouble of the man in Romans 7. Where's the power? We're pardoned, friends, but pardon in and of itself is not power. Pardon is not power. A clean slate is not the same as an empowered soul. There is yet in our new life another ingredient that must enter into this equation, friends. And he is the Holy Spirit. And this chapter is the celebration of the Holy Spirit and his ministry in our lives to empower us to do those things that the man of Romans 7 bemoaned that he could not do. Just as we can't justify ourselves, we cannot sanctify ourselves by ourselves. That's why I said, did you pray for your pastor this morning? Because about, we're about to find out if you did. It's a useless struggle to try to live righteously in a fallen world. Can you imagine with all the things that are against us, who could live righteously in this world? It's hard to live righteously even in traffic. Everybody suddenly knows sign language when they're in traffic. Do you ever notice that? (laughs) It's a useless struggle to try to live righteously in a fallen world by our own human strength. What the apostle will develop in this chapter, however, is that as surely as we are justified by Christ, so will we be sanctified by the same Christ. But we have to take part in it. Just as we're sanctified, we'll be glorified. And so the apostle offers us the end from the beginning. The road to perfection is paved with trial and trouble but the destination is as certain as your regeneration. Friends, if you are in Christ, you are going to get there all the way. That's what this, this chapter is about. It's, this is the assurance chapter of the Bible. I remember, and some of you remember, I was suddenly afflicted with a serious condition, and I was suddenly hospitalized. And there I was in the hospital, and it was night, and Karen had to go home, and I was sitting in there, and no one knew exactly what was going to happen or how I was going to come through it. I was troubled. There was a possibility of death. There was a possibility of long-term serious illness, and I was suddenly alone in a room sitting in a bed. There was a bed next to me. There was a sick person next to me who was even sicker than me and there were lights flashing and alarms beeping. You ever be in the hospital and the alarm goes off and no one shuts it off for a long time and you're alone and there's no quiet. I'm used to when I'm in trouble, I find a quiet place. You know how it works, right? You find that quiet place, you go there. There was nowhere to go. I'm there. I couldn't even walk. And if I did, they would have said, get back in there. And I was in total turmoil and uncertainty. And there was only one thing I could do. I took out this little leather Bible that Mrs. Novitsa gave me years ago. And I turned to Romans 8. And every verse I read and meditated on, it took hours. It was one of the longest prayers I ever intensely prayed to God. And I was being stepped as if climbing stairs out of my despair. So what? So I'm here. It's in God's plan. And whatever happens is also in his plan. But I'm certain of the end from the beginning. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. This chapter, verse by verse, walked me out of my trouble. Friends, my troubles were all still there, by the way. They were all still there the same way they are in the morning when I don't fear them like I feared them at night. They're still there. But I'm closer to God because of the Word of God and because of the Spirit of God who applies that Word to my heart and to yours. There is a friend, a benefactor, a paraclete, a helper, a guide. He is the Holy Spirit. So when we arrive there, and when we're in glory with Christ Jesus at the right hand of God, we'll no longer see in a glass darkly. For now we do. But then we'll no longer imagine that we strove there by our own strength. That would be the conclusion of the old man. When you get there with God, you'll realize you were carried all the way. And the old man no longer exists. The struggle's gone then. He's been crucified. He's been replaced by another. And the new man is standing there in his glorious perfection before his God. And so, when we arrive at our final destination, it will be clear to us in that day that we were carried there in the arms of the Creator. And we'll see that what seemed to be the rocky, plodding course of a tumultuous life was really a ride on the back of a holy wind. A heavenly breeze. The pneuma. That's the word in Greek, the pneuma. Pneuma in Greek is variously translated as one of two things, and the context determines the translation. Pneuma is either spirit or it is wind. And somehow I think that's a wonderful play on words that the Lord attend, attend, intended. rather, Because in the Hebrew, nephesh, it's the same thing. Two totally disparate languages. And the word, and the one, and the single word means wind and spirit. The wind, the back of the spirit, if you will. He came in, if you remember, as the sound of a rushing mighty wind. I haven't heard the sound, but I felt the sound. I felt the wind. So we're introduced to the power to live for Christ, and that power becomes our assurance, friends. The Holy Spirit becomes our guarantee. Friends, when we say the Holy Spirit, try to remember that the Holy Spirit is God. The last words of the struggling soul of chapter 7 were these. With the mind I serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. What a curse! To be saved, to know you're saved, to know the gospel, to love the Savior, but not to see the power to obey His commandments. And the first words of this passage are that there's no condemnation. For who, friends? For those who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. I suggest to you the man of chapter 7 was walking according to the flesh, didn't have enough knowledge of the Spirit yet. We see that in the book of Acts. We see some people that didn't know there was a Holy Spirit. Remember? They had to be told. They had to be apprised of it. One commentator wrote this. He wrote, the word pneuma occurs 21 times in Romans 8 and all but two refer to the Holy Spirit, in, in, meaning in other places it refers to the human spirit. This means that the Spirit is mentioned in this chapter almost once every two verses. Paul's focus is not so much on the Spirit as such, but on what the Spirit does, he writes. And perhaps this is the best way to learn about the Spirit, he says. For as important as it may be to define the nature of the Holy Spirit and his relationship to Christ and the Father, the Spirit is best known in his ministry on behalf of Christians. It is those blessings and privileges conferred upon the believer by the Spirit that are the theme of this chapter, Dr. Mu writes. So friends, it's the work of the Holy Spirit that's been the missing element of a faithful walk with God. It's the absence of his influence that is the cause of the saint's lack of assurance. It is the Holy Spirit that empowers the saint to walk according to the call of his reborn inner man. Your inner man is starved because he's starved for your recognition of a power greater than yourself that's available to yourself. It's the spirit that helps in our weaknesses, intercedes in our prayers, searches our hearts, imparts the mind of Christ, intercedes for the saints before the throne of God, and assures that all things work together for good for those who love God, for those who are the called according to his purpose. Verses 2 and 3. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did. Friends, you are in the body of Christ because God wanted you there. And there's no precondition. And if there is, he didn't reveal it. (laughs) He didn't tell us why. In fact, he says he chose the ignoble over the noble. He chose the weak over the strong. He chose the foolish over the wise. Just so man couldn't glory in his own wisdom, in his own strength, in his own nobility. The last chapter begins with, the last chapter rather ended with, With the mind I serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. And this chapter begins with, What the law could not do, God did. He was still, uh, he still thought of himself as being under the law. Friends, you are not under the law. You are no less worthy of your salvation when you sin than you were before you sin. You don't go in and out of worthiness. You know, I do want to teach, and this would be the place to do it. I, don't, I mean, this would be the, the, the text to do it, Romans chapter 8, Romans chapter 9, even more so, on the sovereignty of God and unconditional election, the doctrines of grace, those types of things that I usually handle in the Thursday night Bible study with the, with the whiteboard up so we can all argue about it. But I should probably teach here, friends, that your election was unconditional. We don't know why. We know that your worthiness was non-existent. Total depravity, we call it, right? We have a flower. You know the flower, right? The tulip. The acrostic. If you're not familiar with it, talk to me later. We have total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, the perseverance of the saints. And we call it the doctrines of grace, and it's been nicknamed Calvinism. And what it is, it's the, it speaks of the sovereignty of God in our salvation and in our lives. And the contending view is the Arminian view, and they have a flower too, the daisy. He loves me, he loves me not. <laughs> he loves me, he loves me not. <laughs> I do want to say, I do want to say, just so you know, and I always go here, If that's your view, and I just made fun of it, then straighten me out later. But I do want to say that Arminius, the great Dutch professor, told his students that if they read one thing other than the Bible, to read John Calvin in his institutes. He was the greatest prophet of God since the Apostle Paul, Arminius said of Calvin. Calvin and Arminius didn't know each other. They, They were contemporaries, but they both died long before the five points were... Put together at the Council of Dort. But if there's any place we ought to teach those great principles, it would, it would begin in this chapter. God is in charge. We do not save ourselves. And so ask yourself this. Either God saved you or you saved yourself. Which is it? Well, no, no, no. God saved me, but I had to give him some help. <laughs> Go to Romans 8 and that fantasy will melt away. What the law could not do, God did. What man could not do because he was weak through the flesh, God did. What the flesh could not accomplish, God accomplished. Rather than bemoan our inabilities, we must rely on God's ability, friends. Surrender is a great power for the saint. It's always more powerful than the struggle. I give up. Paul wrote elsewhere this very thing. He said to the Corinthians, Therefore, most gladly, I'd rather boast in my infirmities that the power of God may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I'm weak, then I am strong. I wonder if Paul reread Romans chapter 8 in his prison cell. What do you think? I'll bet he did, and I'll bet he said, I can't believe I wrote that. (laughs) I don't know if they had copies. They didn't have copy machines, but they had copyists. He said the same thing in this epistle when he wrote these words. And not only that, but we glory in tribulation. Friends, who glories in tribulation? We whine in tribulation. Not the saint. The Holy Spirit glories in tribulation, in the saint's tribulation. Knowing that tribulation produces some things, it produces perseverance, it says. And perseverance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope doesn't disappoint. You've got to get all the way to the hope, though. Because the love of God's been poured out in our hearts by whom? The Holy Spirit, who was given to us. That's from chapter 5, verses 3 through 5, and it's one of the only places up until this point that mentions the Holy Spirit and his power to the saint. This is the Holy Spirit chapter. So God's work in us is assured. Our faith in Christ is Christ's gift to us. And the gift is the cause of our justification. Justification means the slate's wiped clean. You're justified like a ledger. You don't owe anymore. more. But the Spirit of Christ is the power of our justification. The Spirit is the one who applies the blood of Christ to our heart of faith. The Holy Spirit's the one that regenerates you and gives you new life. You have to be, as he said to Nicodemus, born of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit does all that. It's he who regenerates, friends, and what's regeneration? It's birth. And by the way, how many of you chose to be born? How many chose to be born again? We don't choose. He brings us. And then we choose. You chose me because I first chose you. Get the order straight. Most assuredly, I say to you, he said to Nicodemus, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. He didn't say entering the kingdom of God makes you born again. He said you have to be born again to enter. It is the Spirit who indwells us, friends. From Romans 8 we read, But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. It's the Spirit who dwells in you. It's the Spirit who anoints you and imparts knowledge. From 1 John we read, But you have an anointing from the Holy One and you know all things. From Luke, it's the Spirit into whom you were baptized. John said, I baptize you with water, but one mightier than I has come in whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to loose. He'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Friends, it's the Spirit who teaches. Do you know anything? Thank God the Holy Spirit. He taught you. It's Him who teaches. It's Him who guides you through life that rocky road. We have to navigate between the world and the flesh and the devil. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them all now. However, when He, the Spirit of Truth has come, He will guide you into all truth. If you are in the truth, He guided you there. You can't get there on your own. What did I read from A.W. Tozer last week? To understand a text of Scripture takes a work of the Holy Spirit equal to the Inspiration equal to the uh, movement of the Spirit that inspired the Word in the first place. We're all in touch. It, Paul had to be inspired to write the Scripture, and we have to be inspired to read it and understand it. That's the Holy Spirit. The, it's the Spirit who sanctifies us. That, what does that mean? Sets us apart for God's use. Sanctify. Think of it this way. Sanctify. He makes you a better saint, a progressively better saint. And so we read, But we're bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren beloved of the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification. In other words, he's not going to save you and leave you a miserable creature like the man in Romans 7. You're going to see the triumph of walking for Christ. You're going to repent. You're going to put away old things. You're not going to value or love the things of the world anymore. God chose you for sanctification. That says to me, you're going to get there. And how did he do it? By the spirit and belief in the truth. And it's the spirit, friends, who gives you joy. Do you have any joy? Joy is the thing that our friend from chapter 7 dearly needed to experience in his life. I would love for him to have a little joy, but I think he's finding it in chapter 8. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Nehemiah, the great builder, said what? The joy of the Lord is my strength. Don't try to get through your Christian life without joy. It's the presence of God in you. For those who live according to the flesh, verse 5, set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. So let's break this down a little bit. What do you suppose it means to live according to the flesh? It means to set your mind on the things of the flesh. It means to value the things of this world. It means to love the gifts of life more than the giver of life. It means to be a pleaser of men at the expense of being pleasing to God. Friends, we ought to be pleasers of men to some extent, right? We like people to like us, but we can't do it at the expense of being pleasing to God. It means to treasure earthly goals for your children more than heavenly goals. They used to say, college will get you a good job. In my opinion, that was never true, (laughs) unless you're a doctor or a lawyer. But But I do want to say, all right, let's go with it. College will get you a new job, but college won't get you into heaven. And for my money, I see it keeping a lot of people out. Be careful with what you allow into your mind is truth and when you pay a lot of money for. It. That's just a side speech, but I'm just, I'm just saying, value goals for your children that are heavenly goals. So what does it mean to live according to the flesh? It means to be overly concerned with bodily health and unconcerned with spiritual health. It means to be more concerned with long life and less concerned with eternal life. Living for the flesh means living for yourself. It means living for convenience. For instance, it's more convenient for me to sleep with my girlfriend than to get married or to get my own place. And I say this because fornication is the most newly accepted sin in the evangelical church today. It hasn't changed in God's sight. It's still as reprehensible to him as it was when he wrote it. And that thought leads me to another point of fleshly life. It means living according to the latest moral trend and forsaking eternal moral commandments. Friends, the commandments don't change. It's the trends that change. It's a great line from one of the Rocky movies where, the son's, where he's, Rocky's telling his son how people are. And his son said, Dad, people change. And he said, No, the clothes change. The so people stay the same. what does it mean to live according to the spirit john gives this stark comparison we read now by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments he who says i know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him wow leave it to john to just lay it out there If the book of Romans has taught us anything, it is this. Though our works cannot save us, they are the testimony that we are saved. Jesus said as much. He said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. And glorify your Father in heaven. Good works cannot get us there, but without them, we have not arrived Paul wrote to the Ephesians of this very thing. He says, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. What are we created for? Good works. What are good works? Works that are pleasing to God. It begins with obedience to commandments. And what of those good works? Paul goes further. He said, God prepared them beforehand so you could walk in them. (laughs) You don't even have to think them up. They'll lay it out for you. And you actually get some reward for following the course that God laid out. So we should begin to see that our walk with him becomes a conscious effort between the saint and the spirit. We don't get saved and he shakes us and says, now you're going to do this. He pleads with us to know what's right. Why do you call me Lord and don't do the things that I say? I think there's going to be a whole bunch of people Standing at the judgment when Jesus says, why do you call me Lord and do not do the things that I say? And they're going to go, I didn't know the things that you said. I was told I should look them up, but I didn't. Depart from me. I never knew you. And you certainly never knew me or even had enough curiosity to seek me out. Peter said this, giving all diligence add to your faith. Just like forgiveness, friends, add to it. It's not the end. It's the beginning of salvation, forgiveness. It's not the end. He gave a list of qualities for the saint to cultivate in himself, building one virtue upon another. Peter wrote, add to your faith. Add to your faith virtue. Add to virtue knowledge. And he goes on. Friends, the Spirit makes your mind accessible to knowledge, but increasing in knowledge is neither effortless nor automatic. I just want you to know something about the Holy Spirit. It is not automatic that you are in this trance of righteousness. You have to seek it. You have to walk in it. You have to study for it. Remember the Ethiopian eunuch? Philip went up to him and said, he's reading the Word of God. The Word of God is perspicacious. It should be readily understandable, and it is. But he said, do you understand what you're reading? And the, and the, and the eunuch said, how can I unless someone guides me? Friends, a lot of the guidance of the Holy Spirit is a corporate thing. Don't try to be a Christian without the church. It doesn't work because it's not God's will. What did we sing this morning? The Spirit and the gifts are ours through Him who with us sideth. The gifts are here. They're in you. Don't try to be a Christian without the written word. Don't, Don't think you can hear from the Holy Spirit and not hear from the word, and not be part of the church. The Holy Spirit leads you to those things. He never leads you away from God's people. They went out from us, John wrote, because they were not of us. Christians are a corporate bunch. That's why it was very offensive to us when the government said, don't get together. Very offensive, not to mention illegal. We do have an amendment. It says we we can if we want to. I digress. The Spirit makes your mind accessible to knowledge, but increasing in knowledge is neither effortless nor automatic. It takes discipline. Peter says it takes diligence. It comes with diligence in the things of God. The Christian life is not a static thing, it's a living thing. It increases, it blossoms, it bears fruit, it gets bigger. You can see it in one way very easily. People marry and rear godly offspring, Malachi said, right? That's what marriage was for, to rear godly offspring. Where else are you going to get godly offspring but in the loving care of godly parents? You're bearing fruit. That's the most visible way. That was the first great commission. Be fruitful and multiply. Take dominion over the earth, right? Peter adds to it this. He said, but even... Be even more diligent to make your calling and election sure, for if you do these things, you'll never stumble. And friends, I promise to do my part. I'll say what Peter said, I'll not be negligent to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have heard them a hundred times, a hundred and one time is the charm, trust me. And he said, yes, I think it is right to stir you up by reminding you, that's my job. And believe it or not, it's your job to remind me. John, again, whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that you're in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Do not love the world, John wrote, or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, The lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world, and the world is passing away. Don't set your heart on things that are passing away. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Set your heart on the things that abide forever. That's how you walk in the flesh. Those are spiritual disciplines. Prayer. There should be a Bible on your dinner table or certainly on your desk in your study, (laughs) maybe on your coffee table. But the old, you know, when when I grew up, we were, well, we were Catholic, and we never read the Word, never even thought of it, but we had a big, huge Bible. And it had names and dates and births and all those kinds of things that we stuck in there, but it was high on a shelf. I have that Bible now, (laughs) but it's not supposed to be up on the high shelf. Let it be on the low shelf where you have access to it. Spiritual disciplines are important. That's how you walk for Christ. Prayer, the Word, worship on the Lord's Day. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God. Friends, it's very hard. It's so natural for us to backslide. It's so natural for us to sl- sin. That is the most natural thing we can do. It's the most carnal thing. For, for the carnal mind is not subject to the law, law of God, nor indeed can it be. God has to change the nature of your mind and your thinking. And so we get this great duality between flesh and spirit. It's the greatest struggle of the man of Romans 7, which is all of us. We all struggle in that same way. But we do have a helper. And he leads us into all truth. And like him, any saint may find that to revert back to our native carnality is the most natural course we could take. And we have those three classic enemies, the world. That means the world system, its institutions, right? It's governments to some extent, although government is said to be a gift of God, but corrupt like so many others. The flesh, that's the call of the old man within us. It's our old, dead but... Uh, or um, dead, unsaved thoughts, the things that we were habituated to do or become our habits. They, we st- they still call us to do those things. And then we have the devil himself. There's a great orchestrator of these things trying to ruin the church and to help us arrive back where we started. Not unsaved, just unprofitable. Even the devil can't take your salvation. And so we strive to overcome our flesh, but like him, we too may find that it is to no avail. Surrender to God. Give yourselves over to the Spirit of God who is alive in you and convicts you to see what the Father would have us see. James said, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. A friend of mine said one time, he said, You know, I go to the church and I and I tell them the things that I fall into and sin, and I tell them the things I can't overcome, and I tell them the things I, worried about, I worry about, and they say to me, give it to God. He, he goes, that's all I hear, give it to God, give it to God. How do I give it to God? He asked me, and I had to come up with an answer. How do you give it to God? How do you just surrender? I can tell you this, it will always begin in prayer. It will always begin in prayer because that's the recognition that God is there. That is, you've already honored him by asking him for something. You know, I think sometimes we don't want to ask God for something because we think, oh, well, I'm unworthy, or maybe it's too big, or maybe I'm not deserving, or all these things. But God is blessed that you honor him as the source who's able to give it to you. You're already on the right track. No, you might not get it, but it's to giving it to God, surrendering your will to God has to begin in prayer. It begins on your knees. And like that man, any saint may find that to revert back to our native carnality is the most natural course we could take. But like him, we too may find that it is to no avail. Surrender to God. Give yourselves over to the Spirit of God. And I'll end with verse 8. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Paul dared to talk to a whole megachurch and tell them they were in the Spirit. So I certainly dare to do it to our church. If you have faith in Christ today, you are in the Spirit. Reckon yourself dead to sin and alive to God. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Our our Father, make this reality known to us in our hearts and minds, O Lord. Give us the strength to walk for Christ and what strength we don't have. Let the Holy Spirit reveal it to us. Let the gifts of the spirits and the fellowships of the saints bolster us in this walk, O Lord, and not deter us. And we ask, Father, that you would bless your church today in Jesus' name. Amen.